Welcome to episode two of Fail Harder. In this episode, we're going to talk about failure and Silicon Valley. We're gonna go back in time to the 1990s to a company you've probably never heard of because it was a massive crushing failure. But it was a company and a group of people that changed the course of tech history and paved the way for that thing you have in your hand or in your pocket right now. I mean your phone. The company was General Magic. And we're gonna talk to the directors of a film about it and about why you can have the world's biggest and best idea and still fail. Also in this episode, we are speaking with the artist responsible for the most excellent sound you hear at the beginning of Fail Harders. The song is Stronger. The artist is Agent Sasko, a dancehall and reggae powerhouse. My colleague Dom Tunon cut up with Sasko to talk about the song, his new album, and overcoming fear of failure. So if you don't try nothing, then you never will fail But you surely won't get anything done So you may not just do your thing and learn from your mistakes Experience teaches wisdom and you see if you don't kill me I know it's gonna be way Oh yes, gonna make me stronger So it's hard to talk about failure without acknowledging how much Silicon Valley has commandeered this discussion In the tech world these days, failure is seen as part of doing business. It's part of the culture as something not just tolerated, but expected or even celebrated. And by the way, I think it's important to recognize the whiff of privilege around Silicon Valley's failure narrative. And in fact, maybe around the whole topic of failure in general. Certain people are maybe more allowed to fail than others. There was a recent issue of tech magazine Logic devoted to failure, and they do a great job of talking about this. As they note, Failing up is often the preserve of the young and the male and the white. Failure can be a different proposition if you're not those things. With that in mind, we'll do our best to bring in as many different kinds of voices and stories of failure as we can here. Anyway, when it comes to failure and many other facets of working in Silicon Valley, one company really paved the way for so much that we now take for granted. In 1990, a group of computing pioneers spun out of Apple and formed General Magic. It became a magnet for the best and brightest engineers and thinkers of the day. This dream team included people like Andy Hertzfeld and Bill Atkinson and Joanna Hoffman, who were members of the original Macintosh team at Apple. Megan Smith, who would go on to Google and to be CTO of the whole damn United States. And Kevin Lynch, who would go on to develop the Apple Watch. And Tony Fidel, fresh from college at the time, who would later go on to co-invent the iPhone and iPod and launch Nest. Their goal, basically, was to invent the smartphone years before any such thing was a twinkle in Steve Jobs or anyone else's eye. And they failed miserably. Or did they? We'll find out. We're talking to Sarah Karouche and Matt Maud co-directors of the film General Magic, about the most important company in Silicon Valley that nobody's ever heard of. Welcome, Sarah and Matt. Lovely to meet you and to be with you today. So let's set up the story of the film and the people and the idea here, which is amazingly ahead of its time. You say at the beginning of the film, or Kara Swisher says, the idea of mobile computing started at General Magic. And again, I think most people probably don't know that. Tell us what this group was trying to do in a nutshell. General Magic uh, was a company that spun out of Apple, and it was inspired by a vision that the CEO had of a time when all of the things that we do and love 
are in one little place in our pocket. So taking desktop computing into a little thing that we keep in our pocket. So General Magic was trying to create a supercomputer that we would carry around in our pockets and it would enable us to be connected to anyone, anywhere, uh, at any time. And they tried to do this 17 years before the iPhone was able to do it. So they were really trying to create this future that we now use today, but with technology that existed, you know, 25 years ago. So set the scene up to that point in the marketplace, what had been done in this space? Like how much of a leap or a disruption, I'm making air quotes, was this? Well, there was a huge leap, I think, with the 1984 Macintosh. Apple kind of positioned themselves as being this kind of agile, uh, personal computer that you could use and I could use and artists could use and students could use. And in many ways, they created the first PC, the first personal computer, because you didn't have to read a handbook to use it. You didn't have to be, in inverted commas, a nerd to use it. It was a computer for ordinary people. And that like almost kind of changed the game in 1984. And the people that worked on that computer, um, it was only a small group of people. It was 100, 150 people, all in their 20s. And once they kind of finished the Mac, they were really looking for the next big thing. And hope was that they would do it with Steve Jobs. And in a very quick year, Steve Jobs had been ousted from Apple. He was in his own form of the wilderness. And the engineers and the designers that had worked on the Macintosh were kind of left without a rudder or a mast. And they went off into Silicon Valley and, and further afield to kind of start thinking about what could be the next thing. And Mark Peratt, who's the founder and the CEO of General Magic, thought, well, this, this device that we could carry around with us at all times would almost kind of encapsulate all of the ideas of what the Macintosh had done, but putting it into a much smaller format. And he, he created and dreamt of this entire vision, this huge ecosystem that you would have something called the pocket crystal, which looks like your iPhone, that you would have something called the magic slate that would be like an iPad, and that you'd have a desktop that sat on your computer. And all these devices would be able to talk to one another and share information easily because they'd have the same operating systems. Right. So let's talk about that. It's all based on this vision of this guy, Mark Porat. And it's kind of wild. In the film, Mark Porat, who will become the CEO of General Magic, he has this vision of the future, and it's amazing in its detail what it predicted. And the language that's used, things like a phone as a personal object that has perceived value even when it's not being used, and that technology is about more than information. It's about creation, and once you use it, you won't be able to live without it. And that sounds very familiar to us now. It's how people talk about smartphones. But where did he get this vision? Were there kind of plants and a shaman involved? <laughs> I think he is a shaman. I think, you know, he's a brilliant, brilliant man. And how he describes um, coming up with this vision of the future, which is now our reality, is that he literally said he just almost in a shamanistic way went into some other place, saw this vision in, in, in a very complete way, and then came back to the present and wrote it down. And the book itself is an extraordinary document. I mean, I think of it as a spell book. It's this beautiful red book and it's so full, almost like a codex um, of the future. As I said, and so many dimensions of it are, are the things that we use today and not just 
the devices that Matt just described and the iPhone and the Androids that we carry around today, but I mean, eerily something called FaceBase, which is basically a description of Facebook, um, you know, in 1989. So there's definitely a shamanistic quality about them. And it was this amazing collection of people who had done and would go on to do great things in the tech space. People like Andy Hertzfeld and Bill Atkinson and Megan Smith. Give us a quick overview of this team, of this cast of people. Why and how did they all come together to do this? Tony Fidel, I think, does a really good job of kind of describing it in the film. But the, the 1984 Mac team, uh, if you were interested in computing, they were seen as the rock stars of computing because they would turn up to work and they wouldn't wear suits. There wasn't the kind of normal corporate hierarchy. They'd turn up in their own clothes, hanging out with like people their own age, all in their 20s. And it was just this incredible tribe of amazing engineers and amazing designers and once the macintosh had been made they were just they were just famous across the valley and and the universities and campuses and, and sort of technological groups that were interested in computing um i think at the time in which mark perat met uh, both bill and andy in 1989 bill and andy were the they were within the top 10 programmers alive and it's kind of weird when you think about it like now in terms of like being able to kind of rank like how incredible the achievements that both Bill and Andy had. But if you imagine that the motherboards that were inside of these computers when they kind of described them as like a 512, they're, they're talking about kilobytes. You know, the, the memory cards that actually eventually went into a Magic Cap device were one megabyte big. And so it was, they, were, they were just squeezing every single byte out of right. the processing speeds that they had, the motherboards that they had. And it was because they were able to do so much with so little that still to this day, they're considered lifelong, incredible engineers. So with Mark being able to partner with Andy and Bill in, in creating this company and founding it together, there was just this huge influx of talent that, that didn't know anything about the vision, didn't know anything about what was being created, but they just wanted to work with Bill and Andy. And then they would have the vision described to them and suddenly they're like, we have to do this thing. So it, it was just this kind of like in, um, almost kind of gigantic secret uh, that these guys were working on something, but nobody knew what it was. But everybody wanted in, like everybody, irrespective of work, whether you're working at IBM or Apple or Microsoft. There was just like, we've got to come and work at, at this thing. It also struck me that women, it seemed that while not equally represented, they kind of had a more, a bigger, a more natural role. They were present, they were influential throughout the movie. Do you think there is less of the kind of gender divide that we would come to see in the modern tech world? I have sort of two thoughts about that. One is that women have always been present and played a really important role in technology and technological developments. It's just that their stories are not told. And Megan Smith is, I call it Ada hunting. I go Ada hunting with Megan Smith, looking for those characters and resurrecting and bringing their names up. So I think that's part of it. Um, and I think part of it is, is just, we just have a long way to go. I think we, you know, we need to be much more conscious about making sure that um, everyone is at the table, not just women, but, um, you know, to bring many different perspectives and many different heritages to the table, because that's ultimately how we're going to solve the big problems we need to solve. So we've got this dream team with this amazing vision. Let's talk about why they failed. In the film, it really comes down to timing. The market wasn't developed. 
consumer technology and behavior just wasn't there yet. So was that the primary reason this failed? Yeah, I think that was definitely the underlying principal reason why they failed. They were too early. Um, I also think that they were so focused on the vision that they lost sight of some really important developments, primarily the internet. You know, the internet was happening um, right alongside them, but they had their proprietary network. So clearly that was, and they pivoted too late to the internet. So that was really critical as well. I would also say that, you know, you have to have this incredible confidence, belief in what it is you're doing. But the dark side of that is a certain hubris. And I think in hubris, you, you lose sight of yourself. You know, it, they, they suffered in a way from um, just trying to achieve perfection and to have the fullest of their artistic ambitions being realized with just one device. I think if they had shipped a device in one year that was, was, a, was a more basic device, but it sold a problem for a user and for an audience member. And then they came back to it a year later and iterated on it and then came back a year after that and then iterated again. There wasn't that sort of product cycle that had been set up uh, and it wouldn't, wouldn't happen then for another sort of 10 years where we would sort of kind of take a device like an iPod or, you know, even later an iPad and just see different functionality or different things be brought into that device that would bring you back to it a year later. They just tried to ship perfection and, you know, the, the industry doesn't stay uh, stationary enough for that. Yeah, it's funny. There's a point in the film where they say, we don't need managers. So while timing was a key issue, there was also, there wasn't anyone sort of channeling all of the creativity. I love the moment in the film where Tony Fidel is saying, he's talking about seeing the cracks form and he says, you know, we just didn't have a clear idea of what we were building and for who or what it would cost or anything. And then you immediately cut to Andy Hertzfeld playing with dropping this cat in the virtual pet shop, which just seems like not, a, not an optimal thing for him to be doing while the product wasn't being built and the internet was happening all around them. So on some level, was it um, just a failure in management? I think it's part of it. I think they uh, potentially could have succeeded if they had also then pivoted to the internet and they had adopted those protocols, um, you know, ahead of everybody else and, and, and realized that priority wasn't the space. So they, they may have succeeded uh, by, by doing it. But I think it was a combination of, of many things that kind of eventually led to their downfall. Megan talks about this, you know, just... If you'd have done it in a staged way and taken off a little piece of the puzzle and then the next piece of the puzzle, yeah. that they possibly could have succeeded. But because they tried to do everything all at once and do it beautifully and brilliantly, I think that was a fundamental issue. You know, it's also the reason why people came to General Magic is because they were given, you know, the, the ability to create all these astounding innovations. But yeah, the, the problem with that is, is that every single new thing that's possible delays the actual thing from being released and i don't know if it was steve jobs that said this but you know great artists ship and and that's the thing that lacked um at general magic the the actual ability to ship what they had now not ship what they could do later yeah and i think this is one of the most interesting things about this story there's a this idea and there's a quote right at the beginning of the film that sums this up you have to believe you can bend the way the world is moving it's the idea that if you're not failing, you're not doing anything important. And we talk about this so much in business. You need this vision. You need people driven by passion and doing something amazing. Don't listen to the haters. You know, there's the Henry Ford faster horses quote and Steve Jobs, 
the consumer doesn't know what they want until you show it to them, quote. You know, we, we love that shit. But here we see, guess what? That's not all it takes. The audience wasn't ready for this. The market wasn't ready. So what's the balance between disruptive innovation and making something that people can actually use or want? I think that um, there, there, are, there are two fundamental dynamics at play. One is the unbridled creative ambition to change, you know, to find something that you feel so strongly about. You can see it, you know, entrepreneurs are people who see the world and see things that are possible and think, yes, I can do that, or at least I can do part of that. So I think that that's a desire to solve the problems and that sort of creative, passionate instinct to do it is one part of the dynamic. And then I think what we've learned over the last 30 years as it relates to how you actually bring those ideas to life has a lot to do with how ideas are developed now. And I think that comes directly out of general magic. And it's the lessons of, you know, iterative development. You know, we have this notion of something. Let's test it. Let's see if people like it and what do they like about it. And let's take that feedback and let's do it again. So, you know, agile product development, for example, I think it all came out of this. So I think we're all still learning. Mm -hmm. You know, we're still learning how to make these ideas and bring these ideas into the world. Um, but those are two really important aspects of it, I think. And um, it's it's fun to be part of the journey even now. I'm, you know, in my work now at Cairo Medical, I'm still doing that every day. It's like learning about how can we bring this into the world in a way that's efficient and beautiful and transformative. And, you know, they're not easy things to do, um, but it's a hell of a fun journey. And I think I'd just add to that. I think um, Kevin Lynch has a a line within the film, Kevin is now the VP of technology at Apple. He has a line in the film where he's talking about the project um, at General Magic and, and, and the product development. And he says is that normally technology is you stand on the shoulders of giants and, and then you reach up. You work from the previous technological advancements that have occurred before you and then you just take a step beyond that. At General Magic, they were building the giant all the way from the toes upwards. There had been nothing like this before. And so they were creating everything that's in your phone today, they also had to create. So touchscreen didn't exist before General Magic. Um, the USB didn't exist before General Magic. Emojis didn't exist before General Magic. There were so many different innovations that happened in the hardware, the software, and how all those things communicate with each other. Um, and that happened from a, from a design perspective as well as a mechanic perspective. And, you know, it meant that they were, it took them years to be able to do that. Talk about the scale of the failure. It didn't just not go over well. It was kind of a catastrophic failure. It was a catastrophic failure. I think, you know, here was a company, the first company to have what's called a concept IPO. So they raised a ton of money and they were extremely high profile. I think it's best encapsulated by the fact that they sold in the first, um, when they first released the product, they sold basically less than 3,000 units and all of those were owned by people they knew. From a product point of view, it was a disaster. From a financial point of view, it ended up being a disaster. It's hard to imagine now and I can't think of a company similar that had, was that high profile, that raised that much money, that had that much promise and then came to nothing. And it was a devastating experience for many of the people involved. And there wasn't the mindset of we failed and now we're going to go on to be rock stars and do amazing things. They really, they didn't wear the failure lightly. Exactly. And no. it is one thing that's important yeah. to me. And one of the reasons I wanted to tell the story is because, you know, people talk about failure now and it's sort of a buzzword. It's excruciating. It's one of the most, if you've ever really cared about something and tried to make it happen and it doesn't work, 
it can bring you to your knees. And, um, you know, in the case of General Magic, there were people who had depressions that lasted many years. There were people who never really recovered. And then there were others who were younger and more resilient who went on to do extraordinary things. But I think it's important to remember that um, it's, it's not easy to fail. It's extremely painful. But I also think that if you're willing to look at that failure and look at why something failed or why you failed, that's where the great teachings are and the great lessons are that will set you free to do the next thing. Sarah, you have your own startup failure. So this is a personal thing for you. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so I worked on a startup. It was my husband's startup and we worked on it for about four years together. And it failed for reasons that we couldn't possibly have imagined. So we thought you think you, you, know, you try to be so vigilant and you think about all the ways in which something can fail. And in this case, it was something completely unexpected. Um, and it was devastating. It was so, so many of the things that I questioned, that I believed about myself were called into question. Um, and I think fundamentally, I realized I had a certain kind of arrogance and the arrogance in me was an arrogance to believe that no matter what I was going to make this happen, I could make this happen. And at the end of the day, there were circumstances beyond my control. Um, so that I couldn't do that. And that sense of loss of agency and loss of belief in self was honestly the most humbling experience of my life. It brought me to my knees. I mean, people talk about the dark night of the soul in my case. And I think in many people's cases, it's many dark nights of the right. soul. But that experience set me free in a profound way to really look at, you know, and let go of some things I was holding on to, as well as to embrace some new things. And in my case, it was this sort of lucky intersection of um, coming to the realization that what I really cared about was medicine. And I had these tech skills and how could I bring those things together? It started with a question that came out of a friend of mine having a very bad stroke. But those two things came together and um, I set off on the next phase of my journey, which is about working to help um, cancer patients find treatments, um, you know, new novel treatments, and most recently to develop algorithms that detect cancer, and specifically breast cancer. So having worked in this space for some time, do you think a general magic could happen today? That is, the current way Silicon Valley works, does it allow for these big radical leaps? big idea-driven things. It seems that Silicon Valley today is more about money and lucrative exits for privileged people and ad tech and selling data. Have we moved on from that world-changing ideas model? That is such an interesting insight. Um, I think that's really profound what you've just said. I would say that that there is an element of truth in that, especially when it comes to, you know, Kara talks about the companies that are just doing, you know, photo sharing apps, which I love and are, are, are lovely, but, you know, they're not changing the world necessarily. Um, what I do think is I see the big leaps being made in the medical field. It's, you know, it's investing in those ideas um, for a new cancer drug. So, so, for example, a new immunotherapy drugs in cancer. Um, those are astonishingly risky investments. And yet they're paying off in the most extraordinary ways. I mean, the, the, the care of cancer is being transformed as we speak by these incredibly novel treatments. So um, I think big leaps are still being made. And of course, and then there's Elan, right? Who's like, you know, the way that space travel works right now is broken. I'm going to start a company to basically reinvent the way that um, 
rocketry is uh, is developed, and um, and that was SpaceX. I mean, that is just astonishing. So yes, there's still capacity for those big ideas, those incredible visionaries to bring their ideas to life. But I do think we have to be careful and vigilant about, um, you know, a lot of the companies that really aren't making those changes, um, and in fact are, are bringing negative consequences uh, in the work that they, I think we're all very familiar with that are very mindful, right? There's a, a real dark side to technology. So let's not, let's not put our heads in the sand. Let's really look at this with a critical eye. So what can we learn from general magic as businesses and as people? Yeah, I think the biggest lesson for me and the biggest power that comes from this story is I think there's a huge difference between the people who are willing to look and say, this didn't work and this is why um, and I'm going to figure this out. And Tony Fidel's for me the best example of this. You know, he's unflinching in his willingness to look at something and say, this is not working. Um, how do we make it better? How do we make it smaller? How do we make it faster? How do we make it more beautiful? And I think that unflinching look at oneself and one's limitations and then trying to then figure out, okay, so based on that, how can I move forward? How can I learn more? How can I do this better? I think is the key to um, to everything in terms of when you're trying to, to bring something to life, whether it's, um, you know, an advertising campaign or a product or, um, you know, a new, a new kind of medicine. And I think my take on it is somewhat inspired by Megan Smith. I think Silicon Valley uh, has this tendency, but I think it's something that happens across the business. You see these entire companies personified by one person. So when we look at Facebook, we just think Mark Zuckerberg. When we think about Microsoft, we still think about Bill Gates. There's this myth that the success of this entire company that you know has huge influence and has, 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 has created amazing technologies have just become just have come excuse me because of one person and it creates this almost kind of superhero myth that isn't real you know companies are, are made by the decisions and ideas um of tens hundreds thousands of people and for me and sarah i think when we wanted to make this film is that we wanted to show that extraordinary people are ordinary people who have done something extra and i think speaking to sarah's point that for those that have went on to succeed, it's because they had the ability to look at themselves and to question what they uh, were responsible for within the failures and what lessons could be learned is really important that those are universal lessons, we hope. How did you come to be there? It should be said that what makes this story so great is that you're really seeing this play out. The footage is amazing. So why was David Hoffman, who was filming, why was he there and why were you there? I, David Hoffman was my mentor. I was a filmmaker in Maine and David had a company called Very Directions and did extraordinary work, made some very seminal TV series, including one called Moonshot. Um, and he, he was friends with Mark Pratt. They'd been friends for a long time. And in fact, they made a series together called The Information Age for PBS. And when Mark started General Magic, he called David and said, hey, David, you know, we're we're, we're building the future essentially, but I don't have a way to show it because it's so early. Can you come and help me make some films that will create tools, will create a visual representation of what it is that I'm doing? And David said to me, you know, he explained what he was doing and would I come and help? And that's how I ended up. But it was just such incredible luck now that I think about it. You know, there were all these people pounding on the door trying to get interviews and it just 
just this, it was, it was actually magic. It was a piece of serendipity and a piece of magic, but I got to be there. So David and I um, went to General Magic and started filming those early days. And it wasn't apparent immediately that this was going to be something extraordinary, but David had the foresight to keep the footage. And that was really the basis of the film. So what do you want audiences to take away from this film? I want them to feel inspired. I want them to feel like that dream they have or the thing they want to invent or the thing they want to make is possible. And that, um, that we've created almost a blueprint for the journey. It's a classic hero's journey, right? There are going to be dark nights of the soul. There are going to be adversaries. There, there are going to be things that you encounter along the way that you never imagined. And you're going to end up in a place that you never imagined. But it's the most incredible journey that you can make. So that's what we want to do is encourage people to take those first steps and begin. Do you think if Steve Jobs or any of the general magic people, Tony Fidel or Andy Rubin of that time could get in a time machine and land today and look around and see us all walking around with our heads down, looking at our phones and see what that, you know, what they have wrought, not all of which has been great, would they think twice? I know what they would say. I have an answer for that. So my favorite, favorite thing about Steve Jobs, which I think about regularly, is as he was dying, he said famously, wow, oh, wow. And I'm quite sure that that would be his response if he was here looking, looking around today at what, how, how we all use these little magical devices. Wow, indeed. Sarah and Matt, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, thank you so much. For more information about General Magic, go to generalmagicthemovie.com. And now, let's switch gears. We're talking music, we're talking stronger, we're talking Fasco. Okay, so this is the part where we interview the dude who sang the intro music to the podcast. His name is Agent Sasco, also known as Assassin. He's a dancehall artist from Jamaica. Lakewood means rewind, a gunshot means forward. You requested it, so we rewind. Come on. For all y'all who don't know about dancehall, it's kind of like rap meets reggae, and characterized by a hyped up MC, rhyming in Jamaican patois over instrumentals known as the rhythm. Sasko made a name for himself through his firepower vocals that destroy everything in their path. Although he's been emceeing for two decades, most of the world first heard of Sasko a few years ago when he appeared on Kanye West's album, Jesus. So yeah, Jesus, no big But Sasko rose to greater acclaim when he brought his vocal prowess to Kendrick Lamar's The Black of the Berry. Sasko's track, Stronger, was chosen as a theme song to the Fail Harder podcast because it deals directly with the idea of progress being a result of not being afraid to fail. 
Anyways, we were lucky enough to catch up with Sasko when he was in New York to promote his new album, Hope River. We got to talking about how failure has taught him the most important lessons throughout his career and continues to do so. Give thanks to the obstacles in our way, cause the hurdles teach you for jump. If everything did smooth every day, we wouldn't know we could overcome. Say if it don't kill way. I surely know it's gonna build way. It's gonna make me stronger. Now one of the most powerful lines in this song to me, or one of the most powerful ideas, is that look how much time my baby drop when them I learn for walk. Just the fearlessness in 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 you know the younger ones. Cause seriously, like you can imagine how many times you had to fall down before you actually. What if? It, but there is something in you that says, "No, I, I can do this." I'm, you know, I'm gonna keep trying, and you know, what I mean, then eventually you get it, and once upon then boop, you fall again. So, so it's very, it's very, to me that that really is a very powerful way to look at it. Like, listen, you know, walking a simple thing like that. In order to learn to walk, you had to go through many failures. And here you are walking all over the place and running and jumping and skipping. So, you know, stick with it. Sesco started emceeing, in a sense, as a result of failure. Here he describes how he started out rhyming by trying and failing to copy the dancehall hits he heard on the radio as a young boy. Um, so I started out trying to put words together when I was very young. I don't know, three and a half, four years old. Like I mean, my, my first song, I, I, I remember putting together our first little... Uh, verse or chorus I was about four um, and it goes water chuck ding 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 water chuck ding 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 uh, please pardon the flow because this is like 80 what this is 86 now so this is a real 86 dancehall flow <laughs> like yeah you know from Super Cat and uh, my name Admiral Bailey and those guys so it's like water chuck ding 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 water chuck ding 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 Ding, water chuck, say if you land on your feet, call it water chuck, and if you, you know what I mean? So that, that kind of vibe. So, as you can hear, there was nothing fantastic going on, but I was for, come on, guys. Yeah. Um, so, so, what would happen um, initially, I would try to learn my favorite songs, you know, from the radio, because, you know, nowadays, you know, kids get to go on YouTube and play the song a, a million times or whatever streaming service they are using. But for me, it was hearing it on the radio and trying to catch it as, as it went by because, you know, who knows when you're going to hear it again. Uh, and what would happen um, was I would learn a few lines and there would be lines missing. But where people would go like, um, and something, 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 instead of going something, 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 I would try to complete the composition in a way that would still make sense. Um, and so that's how I started to do it. And there was no pen and paper involved in that because you're trying to hear the song and learn the song and then something, 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 but you put your own lines in. So no pen and paper was involved in that. And I think that's because it started like that, kind of, you know, you stick to what you know and it continued like that. Fear of failure has had the effect of stifling Sasko in the past, but letting go of that fear has been a liberating experience for him and his music. A big part of how I um, approach music now is to divorce the outcomes, because um, it's very, it's very nerve-wracking to, to be, you know, in the creative space and and, and be thinking um, about the end game. So like, um, so for for quite a while I didn't have, um, I wasn't working on any album because, you know, between myself and people who were close to me at that time. 
there was a lot of fear and doubt in terms of, oh, albums don't sell anyway, blah, blah, blah. And you get so caught up in how it's gonna look if you put an album out and it doesn't sell. And you know, all of those things. And so, I, I, you know, like I said, for me, in the process of putting anything together, I try, I try to just divorce the outcome. It's not to say that it doesn't, you know, try to present itself. You know, you, you, you know, it's not like you don't think about it. Come on, I'm, you know, I'm, 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 I'm living, man. I'm alive, and so, you know, it will try to come. It's just, it's just how you, it's just how you, you, you respond to it and process it, um, and and you know, just just let it be. There's great freedom in that. Just divorcing the outcome, do what you need to do, and and let it be. But and what's what's most empowering about it is that the more you do that and the more you see that you know it, uh, it lands well then the more you're uh, led to to continue doing that so like what i've gotten from this album and the feedback from it is just how sincere people um you know feel that it is because it is you know what i mean it's just just keeping it real let, letting it be Okay, well that's about it for now. Keep it real and big up yourself. Instead of wishing on a star, I became one. You know, I'll be changing everything.